So if you remember last week, uh, Jesus is mourning the death of John the Baptist uh, because Herod chopped his head off. So he needs to go away to a desolate place. Matthew 14, verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this about the death of John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. Remember that. uh, It's important later on. By himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. So obviously Matthew wants us to get that this is a desolate place. right? Desolate, desolate. And the day is now over. Send the crowds or the multitude away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And don't think of a loaf. Think of a a dinner roll. Okay, five dinner rolls and... Two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, A blessing. Now imagine being there right now. You've got thousands of people, and he's thanking God for five dinner rolls and two fish. And the apostles are probably going, Is he crazy? Why is he thanking God for this little lunch? Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied, and that word satisfied means stuffed. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. How many apostles? Come on, 12, right? You with me? This is not, it's not that hard. All right, 12. So he makes the exact amount everybody needs to be stuffed, including the 12. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Throw in the wives, and they didn't just have one child back then. So 5,000 men, 5,000 women. It, this could have been 25. 30,000 people that he feeds with one lunch. You know, um, John's gospel is built around seven miracles. But John doesn't call them miracles. You know what he calls them? What's he call them? Come on, guys. This is audience participation day. Come on. Signs. Signs. Very good. Thank you. But I can't hear you if you're whispering now. See, but now I'm going to have to tell you to calm down. Okay. Seven signs. What's the difference between a miracle and a sign? See, a miracle is just a raw show of supernatural power. Okay. A sign, on the other hand, yes, it's a supernatural show of power. It's a miracle, but it points to something else. So John builds his gospel around seven signs. Jesus does these seven signs. And those signs point to something that we're to pay attention 
in Jesus. Now, there's one miracle that appears in all four Gospels. This one. This is important. This feeding of the 5,000. If all we get out of this miracle is, wow, Jesus is cool. He can feed 25,000 people with one lunch, then we've missed it. All right? So here's what I want us to do. I want to see if we can get three lessons from two fish and five loaves. All right? Three lessons. First thing that the miracle points to in Jesus is this. Jesus is our provider. Right? Jesus is our provider. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, it's not hard to see that Matthew and all the gospel writers are trying to build a parallel between this event and an Old Testament event. Remember, Moses leads the multitude of the Israelites out from Egypt into the desert. Right? For 40 years, they're wandering in the desert. They are in a desolate place. Okay? So, first parallel, the Israelites are in the desert. Here, Jesus is in a desolate place. Second parallel is there's a multitude of Israelites, and here there's a multitude following Jesus. 25,000 people. Another parallel. The Israelites are starving. They start grumbling. That's the theme in the Old Testament. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Here, the people are starting to starve. And then God provides for them how? Magic manna. Every morning, there's bread from heaven. And here, Jesus provides bread and fish. Jesus is fulfilling an Old Testament picture. Right? Now, um, before he does it, though, he tries to teach the apostles a lesson. He tries to get them to see that he is the, provi- the provider. Just like God in the Old Testament provided for the Israelites, he's hoping that they will see that he's the provider. They don't get it, though. Right? Um, they come to him and say, send the people to the local sto- to the to the McDonald's and the Burger Kings in the local towns. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now, where was he hoping they would turn? To him. They don't get it. They say to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. Now, in John's gospel, by the way, in um, Matthew's Gospel, there's a few verses that describe this. John takes 70 verses to expound upon this miracle. And we see that he doesn't just turn to the apostles, he specifically turns to one apostle, and that is Thomas. Or excuse me, (laughs) Philip. Philip, lifting up his eyes, this is John 6, 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, He said to Philip, okay, so he zeroes in on Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, 
for he himself knew what he would do. He knows he's going to do this miracle, but he zeroes in on Philip. Why does he pick on Philip? Well, a lot of commentators seem to, to pick on Philip as the, 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 the guy who goes by the budget, right? The guy who's always checking the budget, checking the resources to see what we can do and what we can't do. You know, we can't pull this off. We can't feed these. And this is exactly what Philip does. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, a denarii was a day's wage, so 200 days' wages, would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. So Jesus he takes out his calculator, puts his glasses on, I'm doing it. We can't do this. We can't, we can't, no, we, we can't provide. I've checked the budget. We're low on funds. We cannot do this, right? Now, I love John MacArthur. Um, John MacArthur has written a book called um, 12 Ordinary Men, where he does a study of uh, the 12 apostles. He does not like Philip. MacArthur does not like Philip. Because MacArthur's like a lion, go get him, just, just do it. And Philip's like, no, we can't pull this off. So here's what MacArthur writes about poor Philip. Piecing together all that the Apostle John records about him, it seems Philip was a classic process person. He was a facts and figure guy, a by-the-book, practical-minded, non-forward-thinking type of individual. He was the kind who tends to be a corporate killjoy, a pessimistic, narrow focus, sometimes missing the big picture, often obsessed with identifying reasons things can't be done person rather than finding ways to do them. He was predisposed to be a pragmatist and a cynic and sometimes a defeatist. He's the type of person who in every meeting says, I don't think we can do it the master of the impossible. And apparently, as far as he was concerned, almost everything fit into that category. Everything seemed impossible to him. And I go, where did you get all that, John? Um, But he reads this and sees Philip as a guy who says, we're to live within our means. We don't have the means. So Jesus, stop talking about feeding the crowd. Now, understand this. Understand that the Bible does teach us that we need to be responsible, right? It says that we're to live within our means. In fact, Paul in Philippians says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I have a lot or a little. I've learned to live within my means. We're to live within our means, right? The Bible tells us we're not to presume upon God. We're not to say, well, I want this car, or I want to do this, or I want to build a mega church. Therefore, God, you owe it to me. Right? Jesus was up on the, on the pinnacle of the temple, and Satan said, jump. God promised he'll take care of you. And Jesus says, ah, but it also says, don't test God. You're not to presume upon God. Right? Bible warns us against false theologies, like the prosperity gospel where you name it and claim it, and God has to give it to you. So there's all these cautions that we're to have when it comes to uh, spending money, doing ministry. But I think after asking all these questions, are we living within our budget? Are we not testing God? Are we not falling into the prosperity gospel? I think God is honored when we ask one more question. Can he provide? Am I looking to him to provide? Not just as a church, but as individuals. Is our trust 
more in our bank account or in God. Now, I, I think as I challenge you with this, you need to know yourself. If you are more of a, uh, of a person who tends to live in a fantasy world, oh, the money will just show up, and you don't live within your means, um, then you plug your ears, okay? You don't listen to this. But most Christians I hang around are more like Philip. Overly cautious. Right? We don't have the resources to do it, so let's put the brakes on. Right? Now, um, tell you something interesting. I was really working on this on Tuesday, thinking about, Lord, what, uh, how does this apply uh, to us as a church? Are we overly conservative when it comes to what you're calling us to do? And then what about the whole land and building thing? I mean, we're going on our 10th year now. Um, we've got $164,000. Should we be looking to you more in this area? And that day, Tuesday, somebody comes into my world and basically says, um, I want to work with the church on some land. And I'm, I can't get into the details right now, but it was one of those deals where you study the scripture, you pray and say, Lord, do you need, do you want me to trust you more? Knock, knock, here. Right? And I think what God is saying is the same God who provided manna in the desert. He's the same God who fed 25,000 people. And he's the same God who you need to be looking to, to do ministry, to buy land, to build a church. Are you looking to yourself or are you looking to him? And I think the word that you need to hear this morning, even in your personal finances, maybe especially in your personal finances, God is still the provider. God is the provider. I know for some of you that's hard to believe. Are you looking to him or are you looking to yourself? Keep trusting him as provider. Right? Let me give you a second thing we can learn from this miracle, and that is Jesus is the creator. Right? Jesus is the creator. Um, he creates lunch for 25,000. Right? This is what, in fact, interesting, Dan shared a number of these verses. John 1.3 says this of Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made, that was made. In other words, Jesus, when we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God talks to himself and he says, let us do this. It's the members of the Trinity talking and it's Jesus as the agent of creation. Now, boy, it seems like this issue of creation 
and uh, evolution is in the news uh, more frequently. Are you familiar with this issue of Christianity today? A few months ago, um, front, front page article, The Search for the Historical Adam. All right, now I can't read this unless I walk up here. Some scholars believe that genome science cast doubt on the existence of the first man and woman. Front page, Christianity Today. What it's basically saying is there are Christian scientists who have studied the genes of humans and studied the genes of chimps, and they say they're so identical that they had to have come from a common ancestor. Now, if that is true, then the Genesis story in Genesis 1 and 2 about God creating a man and then creating the woman from the man and putting them in a garden and the whole story with the snake, that can't be historical. That has to be a metaphor. That has to be a parable, but it can't be real history. All right, that's what they're debating uh, today at Christian seminaries and colleges. And, um, basically, you can't take Genesis 1 and 2 literally is what the question or the, what the debate is. Right? Now, realize this is no longer just do we take the word day in Genesis 1 to be a, you know, is it a 24-hour period or a long period of time? You know the argument. Day might mean an epoch. Therefore, when it says on day one, day two, day, it means million-year period one, multi-million-year period two. Okay? So that used to be the debate. But the Christian church long ago conceded that and said, yeah, we buy the fact, the, 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 the theory, that day doesn't mean 24 hours. Yeah, let it be multiple millions of years. So epic one, this happened. Epic two, this happened. Even though it says there was morning and evening, right? And even though it says day one, day two, it's epic one, epic two, because we need 4.5 billion years for evolution to have produced what we have today, right? In fact, here's what happened. The Christian church said, well, it's embarrassing to believe in a short amount of time. Everybody believes that we've been here 4.5 billion years. And it's not a matter of salvation. So just concede that point. Whatever you want to believe. In fact, the official stance of many churches is believe whatever you want to believe on that. And you're not allowed to have a solid position. Okay? Well, I'm afraid we're going to do the same thing with this. I'm afraid we're going to say, hey, whether Genesis 1 and 2 is a literal historical story or not, doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus rose from the dead. And if you believe in him, you're saved. It doesn't matter what you believe about Adam and Eve. Well, I'm going to tell you, it does matter what you believe about Adam and Eve because... If there was not a literal Adam and Eve, not only must, be, must we question Genesis 1 and 2, we need to abandon the inspiration of the New Testament. 
Because the New Testament believes in a literal Adam and Eve. You go, where, where does it say that? Well, let me give you some verses. In Matthew 19. And the Pharisees came up, up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So now Jesus is going to give uh, his divine instruction on the permanency of marriage. He answered, have you not read, so now he's making a reference to the Old Testament, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So here he's referring to Genesis chapter 2, where God created male and female. Now, that word male and female in the English you could take it as he a bunch of males and a bunch of females, but in the Greek, arson is singular. And female is singular. So it's saying, from the beginning, he made them, Adam and Eve, a singular male and a singular female. Jesus believed in a literal Adam and Eve. A literal man and a woman. Not just bunches of them, which is what you would need if we evolved from a primate. Right? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 2, God creates the man and the woman, and he marries them. That makes no sense. If there's multitudes of primates and prehumans and now developing humans, this only makes sense if there's one man and one woman that he marries. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the whole basis of the permanency of marriage makes no sense apart from a historical Adam and Eve. And Jesus must have been wrong. He was gullible enough to believe that there was an Adam and an Eve. But he didn't have science class yet, okay? Um, here's the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Anuida, all the way down to the son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, and then in verse 38, son of Enos, son of Seth, Son of Adam. At what point in the genealogy of Jesus is he no longer the son of real people and starts to become the son of a myth? Jesus' genealogy traces his, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather all the way back to Adam. Not a myth. What about Paul? 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Now, whether you like that or not, um, basically, the New Testament says that it's the qualified men who are to be the leaders in the church. Based on what, Paul? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul bases church order on a literal understanding of God creating Adam and then Eve from Adam and 
Eve being deceived by Satan. Paul must be nuts to buy that whole literal creation thing, right? Romans 5, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So one man is the one who brought death. Verse 14 says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Moses is a real person. Adam's just a myth. So death reigned from the mythological Adam to the real Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of the mythological Adam? No. Paul believed in a literal creation of Adam and Eve. Right? Now, um, the New Testament doesn't allow us to turn the historical person of Adam into a figure of, of speech. God did not need evolution to make man. Here's the key. And if you get this, it, it all, all falls together. If you don't buy this, then it, it, you're going to have, have trouble. God created supernaturally, not naturally. That's it. God created supernaturally, not naturally. If you, if you have to insert naturalism into this whole thing, you're going to start to throw away the days. You're going to start to throw away a literal Adam and Eve. And then your left is the one who decides which miracles really happened and which ones didn't happen. Right? I mean, if, if naturalism is how God had to do his miracles, then there is no future resurrection because dead people don't rise from the grave. So at what point do you say, well, I'll allow for this miracle, but I won't allow for that miracle. And if you go, well, I'm a scientific person, I have a naturalistic worldview, what are you doing in church? You should be sleeping off your hangover from last night. Right? Because the smartest thing you can do is realize there is no resurrection from the dead. There's no heaven. There's no hell. And the best thing you can do with your life is maximize your pleasure. Why waste it in here on a Sunday morning? If you're going to be consistent with naturalism. Now, you say, what's this have to do with the fish and the loaves? Let's, let's go there. Um, if you were to bring a scientist in, right after Jesus did the miracle, and you were to pick up one of those fish, and you were to say, how old's that fish? According to your naturalistic presuppositions, he would look at the fins and the gills, and he would go, you know, that's about a six-month-old fish. And, of course, it had to be caught, and then they dried it or pickled it. That took some time. So It's about a seven-month-old fish. Wrong, 30 seconds old. Well, no, he wouldn't deceive us by creating a fish that looks seven months old. He's not trying to deceive you. It's, he's trying to feed you lunch. Right? Now, we go, well, I buy the possibility that God can make 25,000 lunches that look older than they really are. But I don't buy the fact that he can create a universe that looks 13 billion years old in an instant. And that's where my God is better than your God. <laughs> my God can do that. My God can create a universe 
like that. One, one last thought along these lines. You know, some Christians say God had to have used evolutionary process in creation. And here's a question. What about the new creation that's yet to come? Here's what Scripture says, 2 Peter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So the universe will be destroyed. But, look at this. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, if you're a naturalist, here's how it's got to work. Jesus returns. The dead are resurrected. The living are raptured. We get new bodies. We go up into the air. He destroys the universe. And according to naturalism, he needs about 13 billion years to create a new heaven and a new earth because God has to work with naturalistic principles. So we're floating in space for 13 billion years while this process... No. Most Christians say, come on, it's instantaneous. Well, if he can do it on the back end, on the front end, I should say, in the future... Why couldn't he have started that way? Jesus is our creator. Right? Now, third thing. Jesus is the bread of life. Right? Jesus is the bread of life. You know, if, if we get that he's our provider and our creator and we miss this, we miss the real point. Uh, as I said in John's gospel, John devotes 70 verses to this miracle. Okay? Now, here's what happens. In John's gospel, Jesus feeds the multitude. Then, that night, he goes to the other side of the lake by walking across the water, and we'll talk about that next week. Of course, according to naturalistic principles, that had to have been frozen, but we won't go there. Okay. Um, he walks to the other side of the lake. The crowd finds him, and uh, here's what happens. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. All right? uh, truly, truly, I say to you, the only reason you're following me is you got a free lunch yesterday and you want a free lunch today. All right? Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God, or Son of Man, will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Don't work, don't strive for, for physical food. You should be pursuing spiritual food. You're, you're too narrow-minded, you're too materialistic. All you want is your next free lunch. Don't you see eternal life? Follow me, not just what I can give you. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And, and he's going to say, it's not about you earning anything. It's about you believing in me. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in me. Right? So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? 
What work do you perform? Now look at this move. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Yeah, we want to believe in you, but we, how do we know you're really the guy? Hey, we have an idea. Just like Moses gave the Israelites bread, how about you do that free lunch trick again? They're back to the free lunch. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Well, what's this true bread? It's him. He's the bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This whole bread trick is a sign that points to me the bread of life. And, now don't miss this, eating bread equals believing in him. We miss the whole point when we turn it into, oh, communion, we need to turn the bread into Jesus' flesh and eat it. No. The bread, you take it into you by eating it. Jesus, you take him into you by believing. Don't mix the metaphor. Right? But basically he is saying, I'm the bread of life. I save you from damnation. Just as bread saves you from dying of starvation, I save you from damnation. So let's put it all together. The Israelites were starving in the desert. God gives them bread to save them. Jesus says that's a picture. Just like the miracle I did yesterday. That's a picture. The real bread, the true bread that will save you is me. Believe in me. Trust in me. If you're not a believer, you're starving to death. Not physically, but spiritually. As Braveheart said, every man dies, but not every man really lives. If you don't have Christ, you're not really living. Why? You may be living physically, but you're under the wrath of God because your sin has separated you from God. Christ is the bread of life because he paid the price on the cross to restore you to God. Apart from him, you will starve under the wrath of God for eternity. So when a person comes to Christ, just like when you come to bread when you're hungry, you believe in him and he satisfies your spiritual hunger. And we're called to regularly partake of communion because we regularly need to be reminded that our righteousness, our acceptance before God is not based on our performance, not based on our works. It is based on Jesus and what he did for you. So as we come to the table, maybe some of you are here and you're saying, I I don't know where I stand 
with the Lord. Let me ask you this. Do you want to be restored to God? You can't earn your salvation. He died on the cross to pay the price for your sin. And he says, believe in me. I'm the bread of life. And that is symbolized by eating the bread, drinking the cup. If you are a believer, you've blown it this week. I've blown it this week. Or we've relied on our own righteousness to impress God. We've fallen into legalism. And we come to the table and we empty ourselves again and we say, I've blown it, I've sinned. I take in the elements as a reminder of what Christ has done for me on the cross.